Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. In an influential April the 9th editorial entitled The America We Need, uh, the New York Times argued that the coronavirus panic has laid bare once again the incomplete nature of the American project, the great distance between the realities of life and death in the United States and the values enunciated in its founding documents. That editorial, The America We Need, triggered a series of articles about this crisis, this 2020 crisis in America, uh, which is edited and managed by an old friend of mine, Kevin Delaney. Um, And in a piece uh, last week, Kevin writes about the crisis of American workers and of American capitalism. He suggests that to save democracy from capitalism and capitalism from itself, we need to re-architect both American politics and economics. Uh, Kevin, uh, the New York Times is beginning to sound like uh, Karl Marx and and Friedrich Engels. (laughs) Hi, Andrew. Um, You know, the... uh, it's a it's an interesting observation. I think uh, I think what is happening is just the state of the U.S. economy and what it's done to people, particularly over the last forty years, has become so stark that it's hard not to uh, seem strident in saying things that seem very basic, like people should be paid fairly for their labor and the color of your skin shouldn't determine how much you're paid or whether you have health benefits. There, all of these things are, as you mentioned already, con- very consistent and with the, uh, with the ideals of the American Republic that painfully this nation is not living up to. I'm intrigued and perhaps slightly troubled by some of the wording in the original editorial, this idea of the incomplete nature of the American project. Uh, firstly, that the, that the so-called American project could ever be complete, like any country. And secondly, w- w- what is this thing we call the American project? <laughs> now, you're not Mr. New York Times. You didn't write that article, uh, or at least the editorial. But, but, but can you get into that? What, sure. what, what, what the Times thinks or imagines the American project is and whether it could ever conceivably be complete? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think fundamentally, the idea is that there is this project to create an ever more perfect union. And what we've seen over the last 40, 50 years is actually heading in precisely that precisely the opposite uh, direction. And I think that there's some fundamental conceptions of liberty that are not that this nation isn't actually delivered delivering on. And so People think about a lot of the debate and discussion in the U.S. is around this idea of freedom and this idea of liberty. It's the land of the free. And throughout the history, there have been 
leaders who have, and you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is, is probably the most articulate or, or outspoken on this question, who have articulated the idea that freedom is not just the, the possibility to do whatever you want or, or the sort of classic freedoms that people think about, but freedom should extend to the possibility of actually having a, uh, being free from hunger, being, have, having the freedom to actually uh, have a house and food for your family. And, and this country falls too short on that regard for too many people. And it's not just, you know, the, the sort of traditional uh, tropes are that, well, people aren't working hard enough or they got unlucky or that sort of thing. But when you actually look at this long enough, it's clear that these disadvantages are structural because you have tens and tens of millions of people who are, are who are falling outside of the American project at the at this point. So yeah, I don't think, you, I don't think you, there's a moment where we're going to declare the United States is perfect and the project is over. Um, but I think the premise of the founding of the country was that it would uh, need to continue to evolve to to deliver on the promise of freedom to its citizens. And that promise is very incomplete at the moment. In terms of the coronavirus crisis, the original editorial, The America We Need, was was, was published uh, April 9th. Uh, in the three or four months since it was published, it's clear that the divisions are becoming even more uh, jarring, even more vivid. Uh, we see a boom in the stock market. We see more and more poor people, uh, disadvantaged people, people of color dying and suffering uh, from the virus and being made unemployed. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, totally. And I think it's, a, you know, it's only going to get worse. The situation we have in the United States is now you have a lot of people who are who who are making more money in some cases than they were before, thanks to the um, to the additional uh, bonuses that the government has added as part of the stimulus to unemployment. Um, those are scheduled to expire at the end of July, and I think it's going the fall off is going to be dramatic. You have tens of millions of people who are not employed, who have been uh, buoyed along for these few months by this uh, stimulus that there's no political will at the moment, it seems, or, or likelihood that it's actually going to be extended. And, and that, that could change. But at the moment, it, it doesn't seem likely that it will be. And so I think that the, the starkness of the divisions between the strata of American society will only get, will only get worse as, you know, as we've seen this crisis play out and we've seen the fatality rates uh, be different. We've seen the, in New York here, we see the wealthy now very firmly entrenched in the Hamptons and everyone else trying to um, trying to get through this crisis uh, where they are because they don't have that sort of ability to flee. And, uh, you know, I think what you're alluding to, we have this uh, situation in the United States where the virus has become a political, uh, politically polarizing um, issue as well, and to the point where it's seen as unpatriotic to wear masks in some communities. Um, and, you know, that that's not a question of economic inequality, but it is a question of one of the divides that is afflicting this country. But the divide is complicated, isn't it? You, you argue in, in your introduction to this third series, which focuses on the economy and labor, that over 40% of the Americans who use government food stamps 
have a member of their household who is employed but whose compensation isn't enough to otherwise get by. But of those 40% of Americans, particularly white Americans, I'm guessing a, a significant proportion are voting for Trump, are voting against any reform of the American uh, capitalist system. Is that fair? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly how those data map against the the voting patterns, um, but it is true that Trump uh, has been a populist politician is, and has actually appealed to uh, a lot of people who are in you know lost jobs who've been affected by um, various economic hardships. Um, it's it's. You know, there's a whole sort of body of academic research to to try and explain this, but on its face, a lot of it it doesn't fully make sense. Including, um, we just saw very recently the Trump administration is is um, going to court to try and further dismantle the Obamacare uh, provisions, and mm. you know, in the middle of a pandemic, to be trying to basically remove healthcare from millions of Americans who would not have it otherwise um, is is a pretty dramatic thing to do. Some portion of the Trump supporters would likely lose um, health care as part of this this effort that it's making if it wound up being successful. So it's one of the contradictions that I'm I'm not sure I can fully explain. It's the it's the what's the matter with Kansas problem or dilemma or paradox of uh, that Thomas Frank wrote so well about. Uh, yeah. uh, Kevin, let, let's talk about the, again, without wishing to sound too Marxist here, the architecture of American capitalism. You note in your piece that uh, groups are estimating that low-wage workers at Walmart and Amazon, two of the country's largest employers, rely heavily on public assistance like food stamps and Medicaid Basically, what you're saying is that even if you're employed in America at these uh, low-wage companies like Walmart and Amazon, you can't afford to live without support from the state. Yeah, I mean, I think that is, um, I think that is a reality for a, a lot of people. The, you know, there are a number of contributing factors. One is that the minimum, the federal minimum wage, is still just above seven dollars an hour, which is yeah, you know, after you factor in inflation, is the least purchasing power that it has provided in uh, something like forty or fifty years. It's really um, the, the people who are at the lower end of the pay scale uh, can really struggle to actually provide for a family on those wages. So that's one thing. The other thing is that um, a lot of these jobs are increasingly uh, shift jobs. They're unpredictable in terms of the hours that you might have. They, uh, we talked to a, a nurse who's um, who who works 36 hours instead of 40 hours, and then they have low census days where their hours are cut even further. And so you just have a lot of people who technically are employed, but who aren't making that much money, and who um, who really struggle to who really struggle to support themselves, let alone support a family. We've done a, a, a lot of interviews um, with people who, who um, about how their situation compares to their parents. And what a very, very large number of the people who responded to a call out that we put out to, to talk to people about this 
said was that their situation is so much worse than their parents. They might, a lot of them are in the, the people we talk to are even in the same professions as their parents. And they're saying the idea of buying a house is just seems like so far out of reach. A lot of people told us that they didn't actually, didn't think they were ever going to have kids because they didn't feel like they had the security, the economic security that would allow them to do that. Um, one of the big turning points in the U.S. when you look at the history is that it's less and less likely that individuals will make more money than their parents. So if you look at individuals born in 1940, something like 90, 90% of them actually, by the time they were 30 or so, were, were making more than their parents earned at the same uh, stage in their careers. By 1980, that's no longer the true, no longer true. Only about half of Americans actually uh, earn more money invested for inflation and everything else than their parents. And so what we're seeing is a real collapse in this idea that you that that there is the, always the possibility of progressing economically. So and that's the narrative, of course, of, of what the Times calls the American project. We can't go back, Kevin, can we? We can't go back to FDR. We can't even go back to Johnson's Great Society. We have to move forward. So how do we fix this stuff? I think there's some really straightforward things to do. You know, one of the other troubling dimensions of this is the race issue, which we haven't really talked about. And we've just done, uh, comb through some research, there some recent research. And, and just recently we wrote uh, about the fact that the wage gap between black and white men in America is as bad as it was in 1950 when there was still legalized mm. uh, segregation in parts of the United States and the civil rights movement had yet to fully play out. It turns out when you look at a lot of these problems, just paying people fairer wages would actually make a big difference. And one of the best ways to close the black-white wage gap is to actually just pay better wages to people on the lower end of the wage scale. There have been a number of factors that have contributed to the wages at the low end being depressed. You know, among them, and probably the biggest one is the, um, the or one of the big ones is that the pay for owners, investors, and executives has actually increased dramatically while the workers' share of the economy has gone down. So if you look over the last 40 years, the percentage of GDP that actually goes to labor has, uh, has declined. Among the factors are the decline, dramatic decline in the influence and presence of uh, unions and other factors. But there's also executive pay. So 50 years ago, the the average uh, Fortune 500 CEO, his his compensation was about 20 times that of the median worker in his company. And today the number is closer to 300 times. So there's been an explosion. A lot of people uh, point to the neoliberalism and the accompanying uh, unshackling of private equity over the last 40 years, which has shifted the dynamics of the economy to, and, and to companies be much more about profits than about actually uh, treating workers fairly. So that's a, a long way to say like one of the really basic things that can be done is actually just pay workers fairly, give them proper benefits. Another thing that we've looked at really closely in this series is that there is pretty dramatic economic segregation and increasing ec economic segregation in the U.S. A lot of the roots of this are actually racial. It was racial segregation and redlining and some of the, the horrible uh, practices that led to 
single family zoning and some of the non-race based but racially motivated practices. And the result is that the poor and rich people are much less likely to live in proximity than they ever were. And when you look at the research, it suggests that integration of neighborhoods and of schools is one of the primary factors that allows for social and economic mobility. So if I had to say two big things that can be done, one would be paying workers fair, and second is doing everything to end the segregation of neighborhoods and of schools so that you actually unlock the opportunities for young people to advance in the economy. Whose responsibility is that? Let's let's take the example of Amazon, one of the two low-wage companies that you mention in your piece. Is it Amazon's business to address that neighborhood segregation? It's obviously their responsibility to pay their workers better. But where does the responsibility of, of a corporation like Amazon begin and end, and, 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 and particularly in terms of the role of government too? Yeah, well, so to take the... To take the I think that to take the segregation question, one of the biggest challenges is that they're the say the ten percent most affluent Americans are hide behind uh, lots of notions of preserving the character of neighborhoods and um, mm. and things like that. And they're actually like pretty bad about people who otherwise, many of them think of themselves as liberal and progressive and wanting to have a fairer society, actually wind up blocking the sort of measures that would allow for greater integration. A lot of what we're talking about, the zoning, takes place actually on community levels. And what you find time and time again, and this is particularly a challenge in California, where something like 70% of the private land is actually has zoning restrictions on it, you find that neighborhood associations and individuals are actually blocking the, the opening up of zoning to allow for multifamily homes um, that would make it possible for lower income families and workers and others to actually live in places like the Bay Area, where the shortage of housing is, has meant that, that the prices and the availability of homes and put are, are out of the reach of the lowest workers. So one of the things that's really clear is that a lot of people who are affluent and think of themselves as progressive are actually part of the problem. Um, so there are, you know, it is a burden of the, I think it, time and time again, we come back to the, the fact that like the government actually, and probably the, ideally the federal government, but at least the state governments actually uh, need to step in and, 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 and do what needs to be done. In the case of companies, some companies actually do better jobs of paying workers. There's the sort of, uh, there's a company called Costco, which is a big retailer in the US that for years has had a point of pride of actually paying its workers fairly. Uh, and there are, so there are some models, but they're, they're too rare. And basic things like a, a higher federal minimum wage are required to ensure that that workers are not vulnerable to the sort of practices that are much more widespread. Very briefly, Kevin, uh, the the series "The America We Need," which you've edited, is a wonderful series. is divided into three parts, and uh, it's interesting that the, the second part I know is is on cities, which connect with with what you were talking about zoning. Uh, the, the first part is uh, is about what, and then the third part is, of course, on economy and labor, which is uh, running this month. 
Yeah. So the first part was about just defining the problem of inequality. We wrote it into the moment when coronavirus was exploding and we saw the beginnings of what we knew was going to play out where the people who were most affected would be lower income and families and minorities who would be affected by this crisis. And so it was, it was as much as anything, a statement of the, the problem and trying to anchor it in the crisis that was just beginning to unfold as we were, as we were working on that. Finally, Kevin, uh, everyone should read The America We Need, which is, uh, as I said, edited by you and running in the New York Times, very important piece, very revealing and in many ways much more radical than one would have ever expected of the New York Times. Uh, what else should people be reading in the crisis to make sense of the crisis, of their role and responsibility in it? Yeah. So and on the America we need, there's a simple way to, to find it, which is nytimes.com slash America we need. And you can, it'll take you to all the stories. So I've been reading a lot of the books around this question of economic inequality as, uh, as part of this project. And there are a few that I would recommend. There's one which is called Can American Capitalism Survive? It's by Stephen Perlstein, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And it's a little book, but actually does a really clear job of framing a lot of the underlying issues that we've been looking at. There's a book called The Economist Hour, which is by Benjamin Applebaum, who's one of the lead writers on this series. And it's a it's a it's an account of the history of economics and the the 20th century and touches on a bunch of the, the issues we've been talking about. And then there's a book by a woman named Heather Boucher called Unbound. And the subtitle is How Inequality Constricts Our Economy and What We Can Do About It. The book is interesting because it is a really comprehensive summary of the state of research on a lot of the problems. She's in, Heather's an economist. And she does a really good job of, for a lay reader, telling us what research by people like Raj Chetty, who's now at Harvard, and um, and others, uh, what they've found. And so it's a great, it's a great way to, to anchor yourself in the topic. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.